Film Fanatics. From the silver screen to your earphones. With Alan Azulay and Gal Balaban. Welcome back to Film Fanatics. I'm Gal, and unfortunately my co-host Alan is not with us today, but joining us are two incredible guests who are fanatics like me of the visionary filmmaker we are spotlighting today, Mr. Wes Anderson, who started his career back in the 90s and keeps releasing exciting movies for us film lovers. And to my right is a member of the Real Chronicles podcast and one of the hosts of the League of Cinephiles and an old friend, Jack Renaud. How are you today, Jack? Very, very good. Thank you for having me. It's always, always exciting when I get to talk about something that I'm really passionate about. Movies are just one thing, but an entire director's work who I'm very fond of. Very, very excited for today. And to my bottom is a film critic who on Instagram you could find at Katie at the Movies, a member of the Official Association of Female Film Critics, the International Film Society of Critics, and the Critics Circle, just like myself. It is Katie Carter joining us today. How are you today, Katie? Hello. Great. Thanks for having me on. As a bit of an intro, let's talk a bit about like how we first got into Wes Anderson and where he stands in our favorite filmmakers. Well, I, for me, it was kind of it was around the time that like I had begun to really make that leap into like you know looking at it more as like cinema rather than just like you know watching movies, and I had heard of the Grand Budapest Hotel because the 2014 Oscars was the first one that I ever like predicted. Uh, but I didn't see it until a couple years later. Moonrise Kingdom was actually the first one that I saw. Uh, and then it was just a bunch of backtracking from there. But at this point, he's certainly one of my favorite filmmakers working today. One that I always find myself being one of the first people at my theater to go see his new movie whenever they come out. So they just bring a lot of warmth and comfort to me i would say even the ones that are lesser down on my rankings i still have a lot of good things to say about yeah i think i first was exposed to him really um in 2009 with fantastic mr fox and that was the year i started reviewing movies and started like really dedicating myself to like going to the theater on a regular basis and seeking things out so kind of stumbled it into him that way but it probably wasn't until moonrise kingdom a few years later where i was really like oh this is like a director with such this wonderful distinct style and kind of went back into his filmography from there and now he's one of my very favorite filmmakers working today i mean anytime he's coming out with something i just get like so excited so there's a trend here of us getting into him through moonrise kingdom um for context i'm young like, so I saw Fantastic Mr. Fox in theaters. I was seven years old. And, um, uh, but it was like my friend's parents took us. It wasn't like, again, I was just going to movies because I always liked movies, but like, you know, just like going to see the new animated movie, whatever. I had no idea like who was Wes Anderson. Then, so 2012 was the year that I started getting into like movies as movies, right? Uh, it's when I started watching Marvel movies in theaters, like not just kids' movies in theaters. Um, and I remember, I don't remember what movie it was. I think it might've been like The Artist where I saw it in theaters and the Moonrise Kingdom trailer played. And for some reason, my almost 10 year old self decided that this looked like a really good movie. And when it came out, I went with my grandma and I just thought it was incredible. And from there, I heard Grand Budapest Hotel was coming out less than two years later. And then... Um, 
like I started going back as well, and we'll we'll talk a bit about that. So when we talk about older movies, as we're diving into Wes Anderson's career, we like to label these um, uh, this segment as Total Recall, which is whenever we dive into older movies, look at their place at that time in cinema, and see where they hold up now in our hearts and in movies. So first of all, we'd like to talk about Wes Anderson's film Rushmore, which came out in 1998 and stars Jason Schwartzman as a child prodigy who's um, a very maybe infamous kid at his private school. And uh, he gets onto some stuff and he knows basically how to do everything. Um, Also, Jack and I have sort of like a history with this movie because I was like, I got a trivia question wrong. (laughs) Like trivia. Remember where it's like a week after I saw Rushmore and I totally forgot Brian Cox is in this movie. And and you remembered fantastic Mr. Fox, which was like the much smaller character. And I was was very interested about, I was very interested by that. I love this movie. Um, I actually just got to rewatch it um, a few weeks ago in the theater for the first time because um, I would have been seven when this one came out. <laughs> so, um, so um, yeah, theater here was showing it. So I went to see it with an audience, and it's so funny. And I think um, with some of Wes's like first few movies, the ones that he co-wrote with Owen Wilson, the humor there's like, it's a little bit edgier, I guess. It's a little bit different than his later films where he was either writing on his own or working with other writers, but it's so funny, but it's also, I think, very honest about, um, you know, young people as with so many of Wes's films as well um, and being a teenager and getting kind of uh, in over your head with these adult situations. And um, Bill Murray is just like, so fantastic. It's one of my favorite performances of his and that too so yeah yeah and and just to just to bounce off uh what she ended on i he's the lead in zisu but for me at least i think this is my favorite bill murray performance in a wes anderson movie i just think yeah for me at least there's just so much behind his expressions whether it's like his reaction to his son's just like messing around in the backseat of the car or him at the edge of the pool just like smoking a cigarette he always is able to do so much with his face but the grand conclusion of all of that for me at least which is one of my like little favorite moments of anything Wes has ever done is that fate is the expression he gives after he meets uh, Max's dad in the barber shop that for me is just what brings the whole movie around and obviously there's Jason Schwartzman which after this movie just becomes Wes's guy, essentially, up through now, up to his performance in Asteroid City. Uh, But yeah, I think this movie kind of furthers what Bottle Rocket was doing and just kind of establishing the grand scheme of everything that Wes likes to do style-wise. You know, you have his montages, such as the yearbook montage, which I love, uh, and even the... uh, the child genius trope that Wes has definitely become known for in more recent years with Moonrise Kingdom and Asteroid City. Um, But no, I just think there's so much heart to this movie. uh, And it's one of my favorite soundtracks as well. A lot of really unique pulls, I would say, especially with some live choices rather than just going with studio ones, which I always, if I were to meet Wes Anderson, I think the soundtracks would be the number one thing I would pick his brain about. I just have so much to nerd out. I think the yearbook thing that you talked about was sort of the beginning of those like um, those like narration, like deadpan montages that he has um, where it's like 
going through the objects. By the way, before we get into this, have you guys seen the um, the SNL Wes Anderson parody where it's like Wes Anderson horror movie and it's Edward Norton playing Owen Wilson? Um, that's one of my favorite things ever. Uh, check it out if you haven't. Um, I think it's just called Wes Anderson horror movie. And I don't remember if Alec Baldwin or someone who sounds like him actually did the narration, but it was really funny. Uh, and they have one of those montages. Something like that. So yeah, one thing that Wes Anderson's he excels at is like uh, humor through really cynical characters. Like Bill Murray's character is kind of miserable in this movie, but um, but like the way that he puts up with things is honestly hilarious. Also, like the settings are pretty ordinary, like the backyard with the pool or the school itself. But he makes it all look really interesting. Um, now, now with the context, it's funny to talk about. But Brian Cox was very good. When you remember that he's in the movie, um, uh, Olivia Williams also. I haven't seen like her in too many like really big performances, but she did do very good. Um, this is one where like the pacing occasionally dragged, or it was like sometimes occasionally a little too like okay, that's just like not mean spirited, but like sometimes his humor is kind of a downer, and sometimes you like think it's hilarious, and sometimes like oh that's just a downer, and you feel that sometimes in this movie. But the ending is pretty touchy, like it's not too showy, but it is like it does give the characters what they deserve in a sweet way, at least from how I took it. Yeah, I mean, he he's always great at um, pulling humor out of these really like melancholy situations. I mean, when you look at so many of his films, um, they deal with these really like heavy themes like grief and loss and you know dysfunction in between families. Um, but his films always still feel really light and fun. Um, but then you know they're also they always have these moments where they're just like utterly devastating. Um, at the same yeah. time. And it's just, it's amazing to me how he's able to, you know, combine those different tones uh, and make it work so well. So what's your rating for this movie out of 10? Out of 10? I like a 10. I love it. It's great. <laughs> I'd probably go with a, str- with a strong eight. It's in the middle of my rankings, right. but I mean, mm-hmm. even my low one is like a strong seven out of 10. So I'm really- yeah. <laughs> We'll, we'll talk about the ranking later. For me, this is like a seven and a half, something like that. But we'll get to more of them. Um, next up, we want to talk about the Royal Tenenbaums. Now, this movie came out in 2001. It got him, if I'm not mistaken, his first Oscar nomination for writing. And you got Gene Hackman as the titular character, Royal Tenenbaum. Um, ben Stiller as Chaz Tenenbaum, which is one of my favorite movie character names ever. Um, the Wilson brothers, Danny Glover, Angelica Houston, Gwyneth Paltrow, um, surprise, surprise, Bill Murray. Well, when I first saw it, I was honestly not that over the moon for it, but as is with the case with most Wes Anderson movies, but this one more than others, this has improved with every single rewatch. If you go to my letterbox, you can see my log history goes three stars, three and a half, four, and then currently four and a half. So it just gets better with every viewing. Uh, I think more as like I get older and kind of understand like complicated family dynamics and that kind of whole idea. I definitely think I might've seen it a bit too early at first, but I mean, performance wise, I think this is honestly up there for most of the cast members among their best work. I think, especially uh, Ben Stiller, I would say, and 
in the case of Luke Wilson, I think this actually might have been his last movie with Wes Anderson while Owen Wilson continued to yeah, be one of true. his. I Owen Wilson continued to be one of his regular players, but Luke, Luke Wilson just kind of fell off after here. Not he did movies, obviously, but none more with Wes Anderson, which is really sad because he really came out to play. I would I I would say in the movie. At least we got him in Zombieland Double Tap. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> um, and then going back to what uh, Katie was saying at the end of our Rushmore discussion, I think this movie especially does that kind of comboing of melodrama and comedy. Uh, I, one of my favorite exchanges in the whole movie is in the scene um, where they're all in the hospital room and that whole exchange with uh, Chaz and Richie. And they're just like, uh, like, can I read the suicide note? No. <laughs> Was it dark? Of course it's dark. It's a suicide note. And it comes after like one of the most gutting scenes in any movie I've honestly ever seen. Uh, and so just that has a bathroom scene. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, with needle in the hay in the background, which is w- one of his all time best uses of a song without question. Uh, and yeah, I think just this whole movie has gotten so much better for me with rewatch it is very comfortably among my all-time favorite, both Wes Anderson movies and just movies in general. And I just really adore this movie. Yeah, it's one that's gotten better for me over time as well. I think as I became more familiar with Wes Anderson and his style and everything. Um, I have to say, when I saw Asteroid City last week, there was a family there and um, there was a dad and two kids and they were dressed as Chaz. Tenenbaum and his children in like the track suits and everything. It was oh, oh that, that's so cute. <laughs> it was it was great. Like looking um, like that. Exactly. Yep. Awesome. Yep. It was perfect. Um, yeah, this is like one of the best ensembles ever. I mean, you can never go wrong with Gene Hackman. And again, I think this is such I mean, he's had such a storied career, and this is I think a high Highlight definitely for um, his later career. It's been a long time actually since I've really sat down and watched this movie, but I did have on a few weeks ago the um, like bonus features and the commentary that's on the Criterion disc. And watching that, I was just so struck again by how meticulous Wes is when he's um, creating these worlds and framing the shots and like when they were making the murals that that are in one of the bedrooms he was like oh the hair on like this little character that's like this big on this mural isn't right i'm gonna like go in with permanent marker and fix it like he's just so detail oriented but it's to such great ends um i actually watched this movie for the first time when i was on vacation like i downloaded it on amazon prime and we were like in the car on the way and i was like watching it and really invested um, cause Wes's style just really grabs your attention. And I will agree with Jack that like on my first impression of it, I was like, I don't know if I'd put this high on the ranking cause it just felt like such a downer. And then the more you think of it, the more it goes up because, um, first of all, I think the writing is really good and Gene Hackman's excellent. Like you said, I think like, just like he's sort of begging to be heard by his children to be forgiven. This is sort of him going like, Hey guys, I still got this to his fans. And um, he won the Golden Globe for best comedy actor, actually, uh, which is really cool. And uh, yeah, I just really like it. The ensemble is great. Again, 
you know, there are some parts that are just really like depressing, like Ben Stiller waking his kids up in the middle of the night to do a fire drill because his wife was killed in I think a plane crash or a fire. Like there's still still some stuff that's really like sad, but there's always like him sugar coating it with like something really funny. I think this one's even more laugh out loud than Rushmore, just a screenplay again. Um, there's also the weird subplot of like not really incest, but um, like he's in love with his um, his stepsister, which or adopted sister, yeah, which I guess is not immoral, but kind of weird. Um, but yeah, there's there's also Danny Glover's great line where um, uh, where he's like, I think. It's something like I don't think you're a dick, Royal. You can just be a real asshole. Like you're 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 just a real son of a bitch or something like that. Yeah. He's just like I'm like very flattered. He takes us like a term of yeah, endearment. Real son of a bitch. I think that's it. So yeah, I'd give this one a good eight out of ten. That's a strong nine over here for me. It, it well maybe one more rewatch and I'll hit that ten. Who knows? Ooh. <laughs> I'll, I'll give it a ten. I love it. Still a 10. Okay, awesome. Katie's on a roll today. So next I want to talk about one that is actually I may have a softer spot for than others. And it is called The Life Aquatic with Steve Zisu. And I'll open by saying that I had a sort of similar lukewarm reaction when I first watched it, which is it's really well done, but it's so cynical and such a bummer. Then by chance I encountered it again on TV and I, there was just some parts of it. Like even uh, this is the part where I wanted to talk about soundtrack. Willem Dafoe is playing like David Bowie songs in French on the ukulele throughout the movie, like in the background, the camera's not even zoomed in on him and it's the sweetest detail. And there's this moment where he's like getting on a helicopter and he's just playing like life on Mars in the background. And it's just such like this, it's like in a way weirdly peaceful moment. And there's so many great, moments like that there really is no i guess poetry in this movie because bad things do happen but he is going all out with the set design and the practical stop motion effects for the animals and um i think this one is really good and it's really gone up in my in my eyes actually like a lot yeah this one for me actually uh is one that i'm lesser on but again like i could rewatch it and then change my mind but uh, at the given time, I think the initial setup, I really, really love. I think some parts in the middle kind of lose me, but it does eventually win me back at the end. Uh, I also just really like the fact that this movie is kind of an entire tribute to Jacques Cousteau, even down to the uniform that the crew's wearing. Uh, Owen Wilson in this movie, um, really interesting because it's a much more kind of calm and reserved character than the ones we've seen him play prior most notably i would say in bottle rocket um yeah. but kind of like you were saying i think this is another big real stepping stone into his evolution as a kind of just world designer and i think we'll probably end up talking about another movie that i think just really switches it for him uh, for the rest of his career but i think the inner the whole introduction scene to the submarine is really really cool yeah, this movie feels like notably quirkier compared to everything that came before, like from the design and the premise, like he's kind of 
doing his own version of Moby Dick in a way. Um, mm -hmm. One thing I did notice when I was rewatching Rushmore is that um, throughout it, the Jason Schwartzman character, he's reading um, a book that he checks out from the library and it's um, the Jacques Cousteau um, book mm, and I'm totally blanking point. on what it's called, but the one that's about marine biology. And I was like, oh, that's hmm, interesting that that pops up here. And you know, now this is like very much inspired by him as well. Um, but yeah, this is another one with like a fantastic ensemble. It's kind of fun to see uh, Bill Murray really like taking the lead in this one when he was such a great supporting player um, before. Um, I really like it too. Um, it's probably not at the top for me either, but I would say that I'm still one of those who enjoy it more than most. I like the you know weird sense of humor and and uh yeah all the effects and the animation like you were saying too are so wonderful so going off of what she was mentioning about Cousteau is um they also pull music from this uh tv show called inner space it was i believe an australian marine biology kind of docuseries from like the 80s with just like a really cool jazz soundtrack that i think they use it over some of his own like steve zisu movies in the movie uh so yeah, That's it's not game. it's not just Jacques Cousteau. It's all sorts of uh, marine wildlife explorers that he's fascinated with, and he does that in all of his movies. Kind of just like you were talking about French Dispatch, just applies his love for everything, wit by everything. So Jack, what's your start us off with your rating for this one? Um, I would say probably a high seven. It's it's near the bottom. I just think it's a little too long i think my golden west anderson range is like hour 30 hour 40 uh this is but, by far the longest mm -hmm. uh like borderline two hours uh almost but, but hours. i still really love it nonetheless um, i think i'd give it an eight out of ten yeah for me it's probably an eight also but it was again like the fortunate timing of a rewatch like literally a couple months after i saw it the first time which just made me appreciate it more. Um, yeah, it's his only one that I think is rotten on Rotten Tomatoes, like 55% or something. But I I do think it, it, I'm one of the people who would give it more credit than it usually gets. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it goes off in like some little directions, but for me, at least like once like the, the whole pirate sequence begins, it just reels me back in. <laughs> yeah, and there's um, yeah, the pirate scene and then, Everything with Angelica Houston, I also really like. She she just plays the matriarch in all of these. Mm -hmm. and, uh, <laughs> she's great every time. Okay, now I'd like to skip a little bit ahead to a movie that's has a very special place in my heart, and that's 2012's Moonrise Kingdom. We already talked a little bit about it. It also stars uh, Bill Murray, that goes without saying, and Jason Schwartzman, as well as Bruce Willis, um, Edward Norton, Bob Balaban, who, although we're not related, we share a last name. Um, also, Jared Gilman and Kara Hayward, who I don't, uh, Jared Gilman, I follow on Letterboxd. I don't know if he's done movies besides that. Kara Hayward, I know she was in Manchester by the Sea. I don't know what else they've done besides that. I know they cameo together in, what was it, Patterson with Adam Driver? Like they had a cameo together on the bus. It was like a cameo on the bus. I haven't seen it, but I've seen the trailer and they're in it. But but Jerry Gilman's big on Letterboxd. 
And so I follow his reviews a lot. And it's cool to be like, I was one of this movie's biggest fans when it came out. So yeah, I went to see this movie with my grandma when I was 10. And um, and I don't know how my 10-year-old self loved it so much, but I immediately just like loved it. Um, I think I also just really connected with the characters because they really felt like um, like outsiders. And I know what that's like to sort of like feel like you're not understood or not seen and they really like saw each other. And I guess like, it's kind of like, I didn't have any like big romances when I was 10, but of course, like I thought it was really sweet how they, they connected. Um, but yeah, I think it's beautiful. I think every stylistic choice he makes is so cool. Um, some of the classical music plus Alexander Desplat's music plus like, I think this one is like, it's an hour and a half, but you feel like a whole world in this movie. I feel like it's, it's not just like he picked up a camera. Like it does feel pretty grand, even though it's set in like nothing like urban or anything. Uh, and Bruce Willis, I thought he was besides the kids. He's kind of the heart of the movie because he's also like lonely and misunderstood. But he's this like fully fledged adult who's a police captain, and you wouldn't expect that from him. Yeah, it was uh, it was my first West movie too, uh, except I saw it on Netflix uh, like four years after it came out. Um, <laughs> But it it still really hit me hard. Uh, I was a really big um, summer camp kid, so I definitely kind of knew that whole vibe. Not like the Cub Scouts or anything sort of like that, but just kind of the whole vibe of summer camp is always an easy sell for me when it comes to movies. Uh, I will say, coming back to this movie now that I've like been through pretty much this whole filmography multiple times, uh, it kind of does feel to me at least, like, the most, like, stereotypical Wes Anderson movie. Like, if someone were to say, like, like, it kind of just has it all in, in a way, but that, I wouldn't say that's, like, a nit, that's more like a nitpick than, like, an actual, like, con of the movie. That's actually how I saw the Royal Tenenbaums because of the Alec Baldwin narration from the SNL thing. So that's what I was thinking when I watched Royal Tenenbaums. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that's also a really good answer. Um... Uh, this, this is where Ed, Ed Norton solidifies himself as one of Anderson's guys. I'm pretty sure he's been in every movie of his since. Um, and I love it. I think his just kind of delivery of he just knows the Anderson delivery and how to do deadpan really well. And he just has a really good voice for it. Um, you mentioned Gaul, the uh, the music. Uh, I'm a big fan of a lot of what he uses here. It's a bunch of just 20th century classical pieces from kind of Lesser-known artists, um, or composers, I mean, The Young Person's Guide to the Orchestra being the opening and closer I really like. Um, and then Desplat's music as they're exploring kind of the whole Moonrise Kingdom, I guess you would call it, also really works. And the ending for me kind of honestly just feels the kind of like how I feel whenever I go back to school at the end of summer just kind of like their like goodbye and like the soft music in the background. It is almost, it's very like melancholy, but still sweet ending. Um, knowing that they're just kind of going to keep going about their normal lives, but they'll still like have each other, uh, which is really nice. And then it ends on that painting, which is the criterion cover. I'm very happy that it is because it is a hell of a shot. Um, also, it's such a Wes Anderson thing that these kids like they're 10 years old and they come up with the name moonrise kingdom. Like who the hell comes up with that name for an Island? Uh. <laughs> 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 
Also, you mentioned the music at the end. I don't know the name of the piece, but they used it again in the season four finale of, I don't know if you guys have watched the marvelous Mrs. Maisel, but I noticed that. And it's like, that's was it the, from... was it like the more quiet, like one with the choir or was it the orchestra one? It's like the choir. Okay. That's um, I think it's called like cuckoo or something, but it's by Benjamin Britten, the same person who did young person's guide to the orchestra. Okay. I've uh, I've actually been um, holding off rewatching this for a little bit because I'm uh, editing a book that a friend of mine is writing on the films of Bruce Willis. So I've been like moving through his filmography in chronological order. So we're getting the Moonrise Kingdom. I'm excited to rewatch it. Um, but he's great in it. And you, you think Bruce Willis in a Wes Anderson movie, that seems like a strange choice. But, um, but he's always great in like those little, like, kind of quirkier films. And I had a thought after, again, after Asteroid City about just how great Wes Anderson is at writing and directing children and making them so authentic, even as they're getting into these kind of weird situations or if they're, even if they're existing in like kind of a heightened version of reality, they always feel um, so real. And I love how this he uses this like pure all-consuming love between the two lead children to kind of show how the adults around them are just falling apart like their relationships are in shambles their like careers are messy and and i just love the the contrast between the adults and children it's something he probably does it the best here but um that's something i noticed in in his future films also for some reason, like I thought, like when they go off and get married by Jason Schwartzman, who's cousin Ben, I thought that was like a to totally normal thing. Like when two kids are in love, like they really want to declare their love for each other. I was like, okay, kind of weird, but cool. Like I didn't realize at the time how like heightened of a Wes Anderson thing that is to do. But Jason Schwartzman, he's kind of perfect in this movie. And then Harvey Keitel shows up as the head of the whole Khaki Scout um, like organization. And um, yeah, man, this movie is really special to me. Um, it found me at the right time. And there was a period of time where I found myself rewatching it like almost once a year. Uh, and I tried to show it to my parents. I don't think they were crazy about it. Um, I showed it to my parents too. And, what do they um, think? They were, I don't think they disliked it, but it ended and my dad was just like, well, that was a little odd. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well... It's better than when my mom fell asleep halfway through the Grand Budapest yeah. Hotel. Oh. <laughs> yeah, my problem with, with Moonrise Kingdom is I forgot that there is a scene, I don't know if this is a minor spoiler, where they shoot a dog, and um, that's not something that my mom is good with. So when that happened, I was like, oh, I really messed up here. Um, but it was fine. <laughs> uh, the dog getting hit with the arrow, that's hard. Also, yeah, the dog yeah. gets run over in Royal Tenenbaums. I don't know what the guy has against dogs. Yeah, yeah. But he, re he rectified yeah, himself yeah. with Isle of Dogs. He's like, don't worry, yeah, guys. I love dogs. dogs. I love dogs. <laughs> I just said the name. I love dogs. It's like his apology video for his yeah. <laughs> crimes against the dog community. But yeah, my rating for Moonrise Kingdom it's a 10 out of 10. I still rank it among like my top 20, 30 movies. Um, it's probably, if not my favorite movie of 2012, it's definitely on the top three along with like Django Unchained. But I was really rooting for it to win best original screenplay because I hadn't seen any of the other movies because I was 10 years old. And why would a 10 year old watch Django Unchained? But now I've seen it. And so 
remember that was like my first big like following the Oscars year, and I was like, "Yay, Moonrise Kingdom is nominated for something," but it was a well-deserved nomination. What's your? I give it a ten too. I give it a ten. Yay! Um, yeah, and I and I think I love that that you did love it when you were ten because I think that speaks to how relatable, even though it is not necessarily a kid's movie. It, I think mm. that speaks to how relatable the children characters and the worlds that he creates are for so many different generations. I think it might oh. be a good gateway into his filmography because yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. it's also the least like there's no like R-rated violence or no like I guess like suicidal people in it. Like I guess like the childlike aspect helps you like mm be something lighter like even isle of dogs gets kind of gritty mm -hmm. yeah. like there's a there's like an assassination in that movie that like i always forget till <laughs> i go back like oh yeah like this whole like really pretty sushi scene just turns into that <laughs> i'll go nine out of ten um if it was earlier i probably still would have said ten but i've just kind of shifted my rankings and it falls just shy um of my uber elite tier, but I still love it nonetheless and usually rewatch it sometime during the summer. So now I'd like to go into his most acclaimed movie, I'd say, by the wide audiences. Was nominated for nine Oscars and won four, the most nominations and wins for any movie that year. And I think it's the one that made the most money. And I think it's also one of the ones that's most acclaimed by critics and audiences alike. And that is the Grand Budapest Hotel, of course. And I can see Jack is very excited. So if you'd like to start with this one. Yes, I am. Like you were talking about with Moonrise Kingdom. This is just among my 25 favorite movies ever. Um, it's pretty much the combination of everything that I love about Wes Anderson movies. It's a period comedy, mystery, prison escape, and romance movie. Like it's so many things all at once. And yet it works. Um we, di we didn't talk about it, but I kind of referenced it earlier, but I think Fantastic Mr. Fox is probably the movie that that hardest 180'd Wes Anderson, like, stylistically. And I think this is where we see, or where we first see, like, the true result of it, because this is where he begins to use miniatures and live-action movies. He might have done it before, but, I mean, there's so many here. And I think that all... was a bit in Steve Zissou, like, with the wide shot of the submarine and all mm -hmm. the rooms. But I, I think for here, it's just so dependent on just his world and just the, the extent at which it works um, really just continues to awe me. Uh, this was, I think, he had obviously had like big ensembles prior, but this was the first of his like gigantic ensembles where he would have like a big name star come in for like a minute, if even that, and then just be gone for the rest of the movie. Um, so I this is kind of just for me at least, the Wes Anderson movie that I go back to the most. It's usually the one that I show people first. Um, I think Ray Fiennes is... His best performance is probably Schindler's List, but I would say that this is my favorite performance of his. I think just kind of the evolution that his character goes through throughout the movie, like while small, when you do get that payoff, um, particularly at that last scene on the train just really nails the emotional core for me. The shot of Agatha on the carousel, I think that just I was going to find a way to bring that belongs in there. In the museum. With that? Man, uh, that's yes. Good. Um, that's so good. But yeah, no, this to me is just one of my all-time rewatchable movies and just one that I think will 
hopefully be remembered as one of the seminal movies of this century because I think it's just an absolute masterpiece. It's a gorgeous looking movie. And I think he starts to get a little more ambitious with the structure of his narratives with this too. I was thinking about it in relation to Asteroid City last week and how there's kind of this nesting narrative with it where you open with the girl reading a book and then we go back to see seeing like the the book I guess being written or the events being recalled and there's a flashback within that. Yeah. So it's kind of like, you know, flash, it's the girl reading the flashback book. sort of situation. Yeah. It's like the girl reading yeah. the book. Tom Wilkinson's uh, introducing his book. His young self is Jude Law. He meets F. Murray Abraham, who's the old zero, yes. who is telling the story <laughs> of the movie. Yes, that's Which it. I think that was my main flaw um, when I watched it when I was 12. Was It was mm. just like such a complicated, like conf a bit confusing yeah. when I was younger. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it can be hard. It can be hard to follow, especially because that sort of, sort of framing device, he doesn't really like go back like that often. Um, but uh yeah, it's it's probably my favorite Wes Anderson movie. I know I've said that before. I don't know if it's different now. My opinions change a lot, but um, yeah, it's wonderful. I think it's, I don't know if it's his funniest movie, but it is pretty funny. Um, but then the ending, it's so heart-wrenching and um, nostalgic and the performances are so, so good. I think you also got the camaraderie between um, Ray Fiennes and Tony Revolori, which um, this is, I guess, his first movie, and now he's a very big actor. And you know, they're characters who are sort of opposites. I mean, now that I think back at it, he's like definitely a womanizer, and um, but he's like a very hilarious, like very out there character. Like he's really a character. And then um, Zero, he's he's just very introverted. Like he knows what he wants to do, but he's not like. Like you wouldn't expect him to be as assertive as he ends up to be in the rest of the movie, and um, and the just the care that um, Gustav has for Zero. Like when let's get into if we get into spoilers, you know when he kicks Willem Dafoe off the cliff and you just like he, he like his voice raises and he's like excellent job Zero, yeah, and it's just like a wonderful little like great job son moment. Um, I know we've talked about this before, Jack, how much you wanted Ray Fiennes to get nominated for an Oscar for this movie. Um, he was nominated for the Golden Globe, and that's about it, I think. Yeah, that I mean, that was just a tough year because you still had Jake Gyllenhaal missing for Nightcrawler. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm pretty sure, I don't even... David Yellowall for Selma. Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, I, I can't remember the... I know most of the five nominees... I'm pretty. I'll probably miss one, but I'm even them. I'm kind of hard. I still find it hard to cut some of them from the lineup. It was just a killer year all around. I'd say. Like I just watched Foxcatcher, and I was like, oh my god. Yeah, I mean, I remember that year being kind of surprised actually that Grand Budapest was pretty well represented when it came around to award season because it came out so early in the year. It came out right. in March, and mm -hmm. I remember seeing it when it came out and being like love this movie it will not get any awards it is too far away people will forget about it and that was stupid of me i was wrong i'm happy i was wrong i think in order to like maintain that traction you need to have some sort of x factor right i mean this movie just had like the great technical aspects first of all it won 
costumes, production, makeup, and original score. And I think it just had like great reception, box office. Like not many movies come out early the year and get nominated for Best Picture. Like Black Panther, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Everything Everywhere All at Once, Elvis. Those are only a couple examples. Usually it's October to December. Mm-hmm. Also, you were mentioning the cameos. Um, do y'all remember Owen Wilson's character's name in this movie? Ooh, it was Monsieur oh, Chuck. That's it, yeah. <laughs> it's I know something's thing. so out of place. Yeah, Chuck. Um, again, there's no real easy way to describe it when people ask me about it. I don't know how to tell them, like, if it's a murder mystery, comedy, etc. But again, I really liked it when I was 12, and I've rewatched it, I think, three, four times. Um, there's no bad time to rewatch it. That's what I'm trying to get to. It's just a combination of the technical elements, the pacing, the genre blending, the cast, the characters. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's a great movie. It's a high 9 out of 10 for me. Screw it. it it's, an, it's, it's an 11 it's out of 10. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Katie, is it a 10 for you also? It's a 10 for me too. Yeah, it's great. Wow. Okay. So last one in our older Wes Anderson movie sections is the one that just came out in 2021. Um, and that's The French Dispatch. Stars pretty much every person in Hollywood. Um, including Owen Wilson riding a bike to introduce it. This also has a couple of like big narrative arcs. And I thought it was very welcome how like Angelica Houston is like narrating the obituary, which leads into Owen Wilson, like talk, like he has a segment. And then there's those three sections. We start with like Benicio del Toro and Adrian Brody. Then we go to Timothy Chalamet and Francis McDormand. And then there's Jeffrey Wright storyline. And it's all around like this compilation of articles to honor um, the final art, the final issue of the French Dispatch in honor of its late, um, its late editor in chief Arthur Howitzer Jr., which in my opinion is such a memorable character name. And Bill Murray, I think, delivers a really good performance, even if it's only in a couple of scenes. And um, yeah, I. What do you guys think, Katie? We can start with you. I really like this movie. Um, this is one of those where it came out and I feel like it was mostly met with kind of a lukewarm reception. I mean, still more on the positive side, but um, I just thought it was delightful. And it, it's an anthology film. And like most anthologies, some of the stories within it are um, more compelling than others. Um, but I love to see Wes playing with this structure. And I think it's so fitting for a uh, Film that's about writing and journalism for it to be, you know, set up as you know, all these little uh, stories as they're making this paper. Um, I just, I really loved how he played with that, and and still like it still has that that meticulous, uh, careful style. I just remember that opening shot where they're putting like all the drinks on the tray, and I was just like, oh, I love this. This is like the best ASMR ever. Um, but then you have like in that final, <laughs> in like the final story, he has that, an that like lengthy animated sequence. So he, and mm -hmm. most of it's in black and white actually, and not color, which is kind of a departure too, since he's so known for these like beautiful pastel, um, you know, scenery to have so much of the film in black and white too. And again, it like hit me emotionally at the end. That final story um, was so beautiful. 
could we talk about that one thing for a second? Because his use of color uh, is really interesting. Uh, and he never straight up like tries to make it easy to find out why he cuts to a scene in color. And I think what I made of it is like he's trying to invoke some really special emotion, whether it's like Adrian Brody showing the painting and it's like you have to see it or it's like uh, he's tasting something and he cuts to color for a sec. It's some like really strong sense where suddenly he brings you out of like this is a picture of history and suddenly you're in, I don't know what year, 1950, 1960, whatever, with Jeffrey Wright or whoever it is experiencing this taste or this sight or this sudden like this song that timothy chalmay is playing in the in the the thing I, I thought it was a really interesting use of color um because most of the the articles are actually in black and white and he only cuts the color for maybe a sequence or a shot maybe just a shot yeah the the one moment that i always kind of think of in regards to what you just described was the uh i think it, it's like the very end of the second section and it's when Timothy and uh, I can't remember what the girl's name was, but they're on the bike and it's um, Jarvis Cocker's cover of uh, Aline, which plays um, a few times during that scene, I think. Um, and yeah, I, I think that was definitely the intention because those moments just really kind of just were really, really powerful. And it's, on top of that also, I mean, the movie came out like only a few months after kind of, you know, COVID had kind of lessened down in movie theaters were beginning to reopen. So just kind of that whole yeah. euphoria, I think really just like kind of added on to the whole experience. Um, it's almost like releasing you from being trapped in a way. Right. Like this, like you're suddenly like lifting the filter off the time capsule maybe. So for me, I saw this one in theaters and as opposed to Asteroid City where it was just me and my grandma, uh, there was actually a good amount of people in the French dispatch um, which gave me a lot of hope, especially because it was like five, six months after theaters had opened, like you said. Um, and it was fun. I think when it ended, I didn't know what to make of it. I was like, I was really impressed, but I don't know how I felt about the structure and the pacing. Like I rewatched scenes. Like I did a sort of rewatch, right? We watched some of the scenes and it became a lot better. I was like, okay, this is like really rolling well, like the style and the pacing uh, and he definitely topped himself in terms of the Wes Anderson-isms. But when I first saw the movie, I was thinking this would have been a much better movie if he had like intercut the different storylines instead of having it like one, two, three. And then we would have had like three big climaxes together. That's how at least I first felt when I saw the movie. But I need to like go back at it and feel how it's paced now. Um, but yeah, that's it's like a first time watch thing. I don't know if it'll... I think I would like it a lot more if I watched it again, but it's I still really like it. And again, when I rewatched, um, when I did like a sort of rewatch, um, I didn't finish it the second time, but it's not because I wasn't liking it. Like I was liking it even more the second time. Um, personally, honestly, my favorite storyline might even be the Timothy Chalamet one because I love how rebellious he was like the whole, um, the whole time and like his weird relationship with his girlfriend who I think her name was like Lena Cowdery. I'm not sure how to pronounce her last name, but this is the first time I ever saw her in a movie. And he had a very weird relationship with Frances McDormand, who was the 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 journalist, also a cool character named Lucinda Kremitz. Um, and I, I enjoyed that storyline a lot. And I think it was like inspired by some real strike 
at a school in France. There's like some real riot. I can't remember what it was exactly. Uh, what was your guys' favorite storyline of the three? Hmm. Mine's the last one. I like I like the third one with Jeffrey Wright. Um, I just think that um, the the like there's this final moment between him and Stephen Park's characters where they discuss how um, they're basically outsiders in the place that they live and how they feel about that. That um, just kind of punched me in the gut. Like I don't know. I felt like I was just kind of going along having a good time time with this movie and I was like oh okay I'm gonna cry now um and also he he talks a lot about um the Jeffrey Wright character has this um little aside too where he talks about um how much he loves food and like the joy of like solo dining and like you know have like enjoying a meal by yourself and um I I have to travel a lot by myself so I've got that's something I've gotten very used to. And that kind of hit me where I live too, to hear somebody uh, speak about that experience in a way that I definitely felt I could relate to. Um, See, I I think it's that one for me. Can we talk about Jeffrey Wright's beautiful narration voice? Yeah. Oh yeah. And it's no surprise they they put him as like the army general in Asteroid City where Uh it's the whole festival. He can yeah. be like so commanding, but also so gentle. Like mm-hmm. I think he's great at. I, I love his those. voice. I, yeah, I um, I had such an appreciation for him after I watched Westworld, which was like right when the pandemic mm-hmm. started for me, and he gave such a good performance in that too. So, Jack, which one's yeah. your favorite of the three storylines? I think I'm gonna have to. I'm probably side with Katie. Uh, I just really liked the whole sequence. Obviously, Je- Jeffrey uh, Wright's narration. Uh, huge fan of the animated car chase that just comes out of nowhere yeah. uh, especially the bit of the uh the bodybuilder i guess getting thrown out off the car into the window <laughs> they do the whole like loop around chase and the second they get back into the car he just jumps out of the window and back onto the car <laughs> um and i would also say that um i do still really like the um the Benicio del Toro, Adrian Brody storyline. I think that a lot of people see that one's their favorite. I I, I think that is honestly some of the funniest moments in uh, in the movie, uh, especially just one really small moment. I don't know why it makes me laugh as much as I do, but there's just a scene where I guess like Benicio del Toro is running out of time and. There's a subtitle that just says three years later, and then it cuts to Adrian Brody just staring at the camera and says, "It's three years later." And I don't know why, but that just made me <laughs> die laughing in the theater. Um, or I love like the name. Of, I'm pretty sure the name of this one is the Concrete Masterpiece. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't remember the names of the other ones. I think it's like the other one is the Private Dining Room of the the Commissioner. The commissioner. Like I don't remember the the other one's name, even though it's my favorite one. But um, it's something like the Manifesto. Something Manifesto. Um, mm-hmm. Revisions to a Manifesto. That's what it is. Um, but yeah, my rating for this one is like a high seven, possibly an eight. Yeah, I'll 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 say I'm like a low to mid eight. I, I it's not one of my most rewatchable ones. Like like, like you kind of mentioned, I kind of do come back to it just for an individual story or just to check out some moments. But I still I still yeah. do really like it. Yeah, yeah, I'd say also an eight. Of course, we are coming to our review of a new movie, and. That is, of course, Asteroid City, which is now playing in theaters. Yeah, Asteroid City, I saw on, um, I went to a night show 
um, really enjoyed it, walked out like that was a really great Wes Anderson movie and went to bed, woke up the next morning and was just like, I have so many thoughts about this. Just one of those films that the more I think about it, the more I find things that I love about it. And I think it's Wes's most ambitious movie by far, just um, with the structure, how he has it as like, a TV program about a play and then showing the play, but he moves back and forth throughout all those things. It's not kind of like that nesting situation that we saw with Grand Budapest. And he's distinguishing mm -hmm. that through like the aspect ratio and color and characters are like moving in and out of all of these different situations and kind of like bleeding into each other. Um, I just found that so fascinating, but also just the the story itself about how it's basically about, you know, this existential terror about, you know, the world around us and how, how do we cope with, with grief and, and impending doom and, and all of these things. And a lot of it is through art and, and creating. And um, I just, I thought as devastating as I found parts of it, it ended on, I think, a very hopeful note still. Um, and it's just really funny like like all of his movies this is maybe one of the funnier ones actually um yeah i just i loved it i came out of it fairly just like fine i think i went into it maybe with some people were looking at some people's like wes anderson rankings and seeing where they would put it over certain movies and i would be like oh so this has the potential to be among like my favorite movies ever so I went into it with maybe a bit too high of expectations. Um, and it definitely wasn't what I at least thought it was going to be, most specifically what you referred to in regards to the uh, the whole framing device of the movie. But now that I've actually seen it and now that I know what to expect, I think going back to it and rewatching it, I will be much more comprehensive towards it because it was quite jarring for me, at least on the first viewing. But just hearing everybody talk about it and like how much people do really like it and just going into the whole kind of the whole theme is about like how we use art to like kind of not like cope, but just kind of like get through life almost, I think has just really kind of helped me reevaluate the movie and encourage me to go see it again. Cause I mean, like I've mentioned with Royal Tenenbaums, I mean, West films typically do get better for me, at least with more rewatches. So yeah. I'm definitely really excited to go back and see. And I definitely think that my rating could improve uh, with more watches. I'm very much with Jack here. I think I came out of it being like, all right, like, listen, everything within the actual movie within Asteroid City, I really liked. I thought it was funny. I thought it was occasionally slow, but it was like really well done. I mean, it looks like a painting, honestly. Like it, it's so saturated, and it's the cast is all great. Um, I think especially like Maya Hawk and Jeffrey Wright, um, and Stephen Park even is really good in it. Hope Davis, uh, Leif Schraber, uh, some of the kids are really fun. Uh, there's a lot of great jokes that are also just really outrageous. Like, like whatever version of the like the most like eleven like dialed to an eleven version of that joke Wes could have written, he puts it in there. And, um, but where the movie lost me is I just didn't like the framing device. 
Uh, every time I cut back to like the black and white with the actors, I was like, okay, how is this really like contributing? I, I didn't really get it. When the climax came, there was a climactic scene within the world of the actors. I understood exactly why he was putting it in. But again, I feel like we could have cut a lot of that. And it also makes you think like, oh, it's all happening within like these people are acting within like a, a different world. It kind of you have to suspend disbelief because the world of Asteroid City is so much more interesting than the actor Jason Schwartzman life or actor Scarlett Johansson's life or um, like Brian Cranston's a great narrator. It's just that whole segment, I think, didn't need to be as long as it was. And it's also consistently intercut within the movie. I'm excited to see it again because I do think that that framing device is kind of confounding just because it is so complex. Um, mm-hmm. Like I really had to had to sit back and think like, okay, where are we now? Are we in are we in the show? Are we acting? Are we in the play? Like what's what's happening here? But um, but yeah, I think yeah, it's fascinating. It confused me for a bit because it was like, oh, so is, are we watching Jason Schwartzman's life as an actor inside Asteroid City, or is this the character, or is he like right? I, it took me a while to understand what was going on. And also they just like Wes Anderson's writing is such like high end complex English. So as much as you enjoy it, like you have to really listen all the time. Um, but if, if this was just everything inside of asteroid city, I think it's really good. Like some of the actors, I think Tom Hanks gives such a great performance also. Um, and the way this movie approaches grief, like sometimes it's really deadpan. And I really enjoy that. Tilda Swinton, like usually she's kind of repulsive in these movies. Like I absolutely hated her social services in Moonrise Kingdom. Like it's a great performance, but you just hate her because she's she's a social worker and he's an orphan. So you have to hate her character. But I thought she was actually like really nice. Like she's like, why aren't you including me in your little endeavors, kids? Like she she was really cute in this movie. Um, and I actually really liked her. I, like yeah, how I love Jeff that that one line. one line. Oh my god! Yeah, that was great. No, I love the Tilda. Uh, well, I, I don't know if I should say. I don't know if I should get too explicit since people maybe still haven't seen it. But um, yeah, I mean, there are so many people in this movie who have like so little screen time, but they just completely make the most of it. I did, did want to shout out Scarlett Johansson actually because um, I thought she was really good at employing that, like deadpan delivery that Wes is so known for. I thought she was really, really um, great at that. Uh, I was a little surprised because sometimes, I don't know, I'm mixed on her sometimes, but I really liked her in this. Or the scene when she's like, any scene where she's getting Jason Schwartzman to read lines with her, I thought was so mm-hmm. great. Mm-hmm. Any yeah. scene, the, the window scenes. The, she's yeah. only She'd only been in Isle of Dogs prior, right? Yeah. Or was she in something else? Okay. I was gonna say, yeah, I think she's a really good, like addition to kind of like the the West the West uh, yeah. assembly of players, uh, just nailing the yeah. dead. It band was Stephen Park, actually. I would say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I think it's, the it's maybe like one of Tom Hanks's like better recent performances. Um, it's just like so subtly effective, especially when you look at some of the things he was doing last year, he was being a little, a little crazy in 2020. <laughs> what a weird year last year. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, his, what else? Uh, Otto was back. all right. <laughs> yeah. Um, anything is better than his Elvis performance. <laughs> this is another one where the music is so good too, because um, you know, you have 
um, Desplat doing the score again, which is like this wonderful like twinkling score that I think is so no, good no, for no, like no, the no, kind of more sci-fi no. stuff. But the soundtrack they're pulling from a lot of like uh, country and western, um, like blues uh, songs from that era, which is the mid fifties. And I thought that that was really effective. I thought the both the opening and the closing songs uh, that they used for the film um, were really, uh, really wonderful. The lyrics just complemented the actions so well. And then you have that one um, original song that <laughs> Jarvis Crocker, it's like perfect. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> oh. Yeah, it was great. Yeah, the score was very kind of. It was much more reserved than it normally is. I'm pretty sure, like, I, I there, like, the album's only like an EP. There's only a handful of tracks, and most of them yeah, kind of go off like, like that. like the twinkling noise. Um, yeah. But uh, that too has kind of been something that, like, on retrospect, by retrospect, like a week ago, um, I've just been thinking back and being like, yeah, and I, actually, maybe I was a little too. All too nitpicky at first, so that's definitely something that I'm looking forward to uh, paying more attention to going back. I'd like because... to rewatch this one too. Yeah, the the kids in this are, are great. I mean, going back to like how great Wes is at working with children. Like you have teenage characters in this, and then like some younger children with like the classroom and the, the three sisters. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just thought they were all so delightful, and especially with the teenagers. Like they're all there for like this sort of like science fair thing and they're all these like nerds and the way they just kind of like nerd out together felt very like true to what happens when you're a, a kid and then you find some, another kid who has the same interests as you and then you just kind of like go crazy um i love that yeah i love how like they're probably like like we've been talking about like they're probably outsiders in their own schools and then here they're like, these are my people. We can name all these like famous historians and whatever. Or these famous historical people. Circle game that was never going to end, uh-huh. probably. <laughs> uh-huh. Oh, man, I love that. Those little jokes of the kids. So we can yeah. start with Katie this time. What's your rating for this movie? I think it's a 10. I think if you had asked me like a few days ago, maybe a 9. But I'm, I'm going to say 10 because I think I'm going to find even more things that I like when I do get to go see it again. I think there's just so much in in this film to pull out of it. Is this your favorite of the year so far? It is. Yeah. This for me, <laughs> I would say it's getting really close to that eight out of ten. It's a seven for now, but I'm pretty it's sure I'll I'm pretty better. sure all I need is the rewatch and I'll pump that score up because I I, the more I think about it, the more I hear from other people, it's just, I keep going back to my thoughts. And I'm like, maybe I was wrong. Maybe I should reconsider. <laughs> yeah, ditto. So now I want to move into something, a little nice discussion, which is, what is our favorite scene or moment in any Wes Anderson movie? Well, yeah, I'm going to need a minute. <laughs> I can start because I was thinking about this only today. I didn't know what I would say. And I, I have one that I think I would like. If we're talking about individual moments, um, I love the skiing chase in the Grand Budapest Hotel where they're switching everything, like where they're switching through the elevators and they put on the robes and then the ski chase willing up, leading up to like Willem Dafoe on the cliff. That might be my favorite, that whole climax, sort of climax, because then there's a shootout later. But it's like, I think it's the coolest moment in maybe any Wes Anderson movie. I would have to say, yeah, I was going to say, there's like multiple things that are like picking up my brain right now. I 
I think mine probably also comes from Budapest, but I think it might be that final hotel climax. Uh, just one zero and uh, Gustav go into the hotel dressed as the, um, why am I blanking on the name of the restaurant? Uh, they're they wearing like the, re yeah, they're the restaurant uniforms uh, and they're the bakery uniforms and just like the whole kind of shootout with Adrian Brody as he like follows uh, Agatha throughout the hotel. And then it all just kind of ends with uh, Monsieur Chuck and, um, and Norton is the police chief running out and then like they both give their side and he just ends it all with nobody move. Everybody's under arrest. And that's just one of the lines in that movie that never fails that's to make true. me laugh, but it's probably that's like, is. he's trying to steal my fortune. That's mm -hmm. his name. He's a prick. Like dig off untaxis. Oh, another great last name I should add. <laughs> uh, but no, there's like multiple other scenes I probably could have put. Even the opening credits to Moonrise Kingdom with the young person's guide to the orchestra, oh, yeah. I just really, I just really love that Amazing. piece. The the whole really piece, what, the whole piece um, with the narration, I also just really love, and it goes more in depth with like individual instruments and stuff. And then they go the final piece in that whole kind of big work is what plays during the credits, and so that's kind of just like a nice ending to it all. I do not stand by this answer at all, but it's. Probably the first thing that popped into my head since I just rewatched Rushmore, but I love the play, you know, talking about plays within plays. Um, he uses plays in Rushmore because the kid is, you know, has like a theater group or whatever. And I love that they do a high school theater version of Serpico. Yeah, they have like mm -hmm. the, yeah, they have like the like fake cocaine and <laughs> they cut to like these little like first graders sitting in the audience like what is happening they have like machine guns and it's like it's just it's just really funny um i would watch a full-length version of that at, like any day that, i would fund it it's hilarious i didn't even notice that because i i saw serpico for the first time after i saw rushmore for the first time. yeah <laughs> i would never remember yeah that. it's great <laughs> and another topic while we're at it what is our favorite performance in a wes anderson movie I have a prediction. Me and Jack have, have the same one here. I was thinking Ray Fiennes in Grand Budapest just because that's, that's the that's one of the obvious. Are we in agreement like, on that? There, I, I I would probably say he's my favorite. Yeah, I I, I would say also um, Schwartzman and Bloom and Rushmore. I would also put really really high on my or mm. not Bloom Murray. I would put really high on my list. Um, but no, I think well Gustav for me. I mean, I saw Grand Budapest like. I had only I was only like 15 or so, so I wasn't like you know huge into like the whole kind of like cinema lore at that point. So I'd really only known him as Voldemort. So just kind of <laughs> that, just kind of that whole yin and yang of it all. I think really just emphasized his character. And then seeing Schindler's List, and then coming back to him, like oh wow, like Ray Fiennes is just like incredible in this movie. Just like all the mannerisms. And he was one of my favorites of last year. Mm -hmm. He was so good in that. Those three just make my top three Ray Fiennes performances. Yeah, I don't know. Mine might be, I mean, that's definitely up there for me too. Mine might be Gene Hackman and Royal Tenenbaums though. Yeah. I, I mean, that's just, I mean, I think he, he's, you know, talking about actors who really fit in well with the Wes Anderson universe. And even if you don't really expect them to, I, I think um, he's just remarkable in that movie. Yeah. Fun fact. Do you guys know the number of Wes Anderson performances that have been nominated for an Oscar? 
None, pretty, right? Is it zero? It's zero. That's yeah, so, I'm, so I was going to say, I mean, Fines was probably the best chance. I mean, I think Hackman I mean, got close be. as well. He was nominated for yeah. the Golden Globe. And I don't know if, did Murray get in for Zisu? Maybe. Hmm. I don't know because the movie that movie wasn't being as so well kind of that movie being so mixedly received that I wouldn't be surprised if he didn't. But the existence of comedy categories makes it much easier. I think Angelica for Houston them to got get into in. the Golden Globes too for mm -hmm. Royal Tenenbaums, but I might be wrong. Mm -hmm. I mean, it sounds like crazy to think about, but also at the same time, so many of his films, especially his later films, are just these like massive ensemble pieces that definitely have more like lead players but i don't know if maybe they kind of uh get lost in like the scope of things when it comes to like awards voting so i think that's unfortunately what happened with women talking um where there were so many good ones like claire foy rooney mara jesse buckley ben wishaw they just like couldn't decide who was best in lead supporting whatever but yeah also fun fact i'm pretty sure it's the same number for denis villeneuve movies also zero performances interestingly enough um okay so last but not least let's get into our rankings um so do you guys have like your ranking with you uh on like top 11 i guess i mean my my ranking isn't so much like a bad to good it's more so just like a what i think is like among my absolute favorites ever to like what i like 100%. essentially uh so my number 11 is bottle rocket a movie we didn't really discuss but i like it it you know just like really laid the bare bones for everything that was to come and it being so i think kind of removed from the rest of what he does later on does honestly help it just as a rewatchable but again i just like the other movies shyly more uh, my number 10 is life aquatic my number nine is The Darjeeling Limited. Number eight, Asteroid City. Number seven, Isle of Dogs. Number six, The French Dispatch. Number five, Rushmore. Number four, Moonrise Kingdom. Number three, Royal Tenenbaums. Number two, Fantastic Mr. Fox. And number one, The Grand Budapest Hotel. Okay, should I go next? Or Katie, are you ready with yours? Uh, I'll, I'll go, but and by it, if you ask me in 20 minutes, it might be totally different. <laughs> um, I think my least... some of our rankings. Are I know, I know. Well, I, I genuinely do like all of his movies. I mean, I'd put it at number 11. I think I'd put Isle of Dogs. That's kind of the only one that I'm a little more like eh, on, but I still mostly mm -hmm. like it. Um, then I would say Bottle Rocket. Um, then I think Did a Darling Limited. Then Life Aquatic. Then French Dispatch, uh, Fantastic Mr. Fox, Rushmore, Royal Tenenbaums, Asteroid City, Moonrise Kingdom, and then Grand Budapest at number one. Wow, Asteroid City top three. Dang, nice. Impressive. Um, that's nice. Okay, so my number 11 is Bottle Rocket as well. I just watched it this week. I wasn't huge on it, but it was still, like, I thought it was clever. Now, number 10, Jack's going to kill me, but I haven't watched it in years. Fantastic Mr. Fox, but it's because I need the rewatch. That's why I watched the other one sooner, and I don't have a great memory of it. It's still a good movie. 
I will happily rewatch it and I'm sure I would love it. But I remember just like watching it when I was seven years old, not being crazy about it. And I've rewatched clips since then and I've liked it more, but I feel like if I watch it through, it would go up. No, go ahead. What were you well, I was going to say, if I was feeling a little bit more daring, I might've picked George Clooney for my favorite performance in a Wes Anderson movie. Cause Ooh. I think he's, he's unreal as That's That's a for, for a voice actor, for a voice acting performance it is incredibly effective for me at least. Mm-hmm. So number nine is asteroid city. Then. Eight Rushmore, seven Darjeeling Limited. I actually really like Darjeeling Limited. It's like a maybe even it's, a, it's probably an eight. Six is the French Dispatch. Five is the Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou. Four the Royal Tenenbaums. Three Isle of Dogs. I actually love Isle of Dogs. Two the Grand Budapest Hotel and number one Moonrise King. Nice. Yeah, I mean Wes Anderson rankings like. Uh, they're all like he hasn't made like yeah. a quote-unquote bad movie so it's yeah. just kind of an order of which ones do you oh, like God. all hits no misses <laughs> like in my opinion his debut is the weakest and it's still a fun movie like seven out of ten yeah thank you so much for joining us this has been a great uh look into one of my favorite filmmakers um first of all katie where can people find you on social media um, yeah, so you can find my reviews on my blog, which is katieatthemovies.com. Um, and I'm on Instagram at katieatthemovies. Um, I'm sorry, I have a different handle on every social media. My letterbox is just my name, Katie Carter. And I have uh, Twitter, I guess, still as well, which is KDL underscore Carter. So you can follow me there. Jack? Uh, you can find my reviews on Letterboxd uh, and see what I'm thinking of the movies I'm watching. Uh, you can also hear me and my good buddies Hunter and Dave on the Real Chronicles podcast. We've got some exciting anniversary episodes coming up. Uh, and I know we have some interesting top tens and some fun drafts coming down the line. And then, of course, you can see me hosting on the League of Cinephiles. We have... One more match uh, for our big singles trivia championship. So that'll definitely be fun. And then I'm sure we have some other fun stuff coming your way. The pain. (laughs) I lost already, but it's okay. It was was a good run. I'll hopefully be back. Um, But yeah, check out Jack's uh, podcast, Real Chronicles. I hear the Fugitive episodes coming out soon. I think it already is out. I think we um, actually just released it the other day. Awesome. And uh, Katie's review of Asteroid City, as well as her other reviews, coming soon. And thank you to you guys for watching. I'm Bill, and this has been Film Fanatics. See you guys next time. <laughs>